Hello, my name is Moriarty and this is part 7 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2004 was a year of corporate shakeups and industry-defining moments. The year kicked off with Sammy Corporation acquiring a controlling share of Sega, sparking a significant shift in the industry's balance of power. However, the true juggernaut of 2004 was none other than Electronic Arts, which rose to new heights with a series of strategic moves and blockbuster releases. EA didn't just dominate the gaming scene, they practically owned it. They absorbed Maxis and Origin into their Redwood offices and even made an audacious attempt to take over Ubisoft. As if that wasn't enough, EA kickstarted game production at USC's Interactive Media Division and launched the first FIFA game, cementing their position as an industry titan. The company secured an exclusive deal with the National Football League, the NFL, and its players, granting EA the sole rights to design games using the NFL brand stadiums, player names, and uniforms. This deal, reportedly worth over $1.5 billion, effectively monopolized the market for NFL video games. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. EA's acquisition of the NFL license was a strategic power play. At the time, the NFL wasn't the same ultra-premium brand that it is today. While $1.5 billion might not sound like a lot compared to today's NFL, and it its $20 billion in annual revenue, in 2005 the NFL was generating under $6 billion annually. EA's deal represented a significant investment, paying the NFL a price 12.5 times higher than their largest sponsor. Sprint, and contributing a 25% increase to their total revenue. This deal locked down some of the most expensive parts of football video games, namely the annual updates to rosters, stats, player models, and more. These elements were not cheap to maintain, and now EA had the exclusive rights to monetize them. The impact of this deal was immediate and far-reaching. NFL 2K5, a game released by EA's competitors, Sega and Take-Two Interactive, received stellar reviews, but it was the last of its kind due to EA's exclusive deal. From then on, every Madden game was the only NFL game in town. This exclusivity, however, came at a cost. While Madden 2005 was a success, subsequent iterations were often considered inferior to both Madden 2005 and NFL 2K5. Some even held the title of Worst Rated Game of All Time until worse games were released. EA's strategy shifted towards non-stop profit-seeking at the expense of quality. They were no longer focused on making the best or even the best-selling games. Instead, they pumped out enough games to ensure profitability, even if the games themselves were not well-received. This shift in strategy marked the beginning of a slide for EA, a slide that would continue in the years to come. The result, EA's stock prices soared, making their investors very, very happy. Those who invested a mere $1,000 in EA saw their stake skyrocket to over $138,000, a level of growth that would remain unmatched until 2015. As we examine the gaming landscape of 2004, it's crucial to understand the factors that contributed to EA's meteoric rise and the subsequent impact on the industry. EA's aggressive expansion strategy and penchant for blockbuster titles enabled them to capture a staggering 30% of the year's top-selling games. In doing so, they set a new benchmark for success, raising the stakes for all 
players in the gaming ecosystem. But how did this dominance affect the rest of the industry, especially smaller players? As EA basked in the limelight, smaller studios and indie developers were left to navigate the shadows, grappling with the daunting task of staying afloat in an increasingly competitive market. Some managed to carve out their own niche, while others were swallowed up or vanished altogether. Argonaut Games, developer of Star Fox, developer of the Super FX, creator of Croc Legend of the Gabos, shut down in 2004 to be fully liquidated the next year, a stark reminder of the industry's harsh realities. On the other hand, Insomniac Games managed to weather the storm, continuing its operations amidst the industry's upheavals. As we open up the time capsule after learning all of this, perhaps it's surprising that none of the games we'll talk about are EA. As previously mentioned, while EA has mastered the art of profitability, their games lack the spark that ignites a gamer's love, and none of their games were anyone's favorites. How did EA's rise to power in 2004 shape the industry's trajectory, and what lessons can be gleaned from their success? How did smaller studios and indie developers adapt to this new landscape, and what strategies did they employ to survive and thrive? And how can we foster an environment where diverse voices and innovative ideas continue to thrive, even in the shadow of industry behemoths. Half-Life 2's narrative was woven seamlessly into its environment, allowing players to immerse themselves into the dystopian world of City 17. Every corner, every alley, every dilapidated building told a story, making players feel like they were living in a dystopian alien future. This level of immersion was further enhanced by the game's physics-based gameplay. Objects had weight, they interacted with the environment, and players could use them in innovative ways to solve puzzles, or tackle enemies. The Source engine, which powered Half-Life 2, was nothing short of revolutionary. It allowed for detailed environments, realistic water effects, and dynamic lighting. But more than the aesthetics, the engine was a playground for innovation. The Gravity Gun, a tool that allowed players to manipulate objects in the environment, showcased the engine's capabilities and became an iconic weapon in gaming history. This wasn't just about shooting, it was about interacting with the world, experimenting, and thinking outside the box. However, the release of Half-Life 2 had a ripple effect on the industry, especially concerning another major title released that year, Doom 3. Before the launch of Half-Life 2, Doom 3 was riding high, hailed for its graphics and atmospheric horror. But post Half-Life 2, perception shifted. Suddenly, Doom 3's darkness felt excessive, its gameplay repetitive, and its narrative lackluster. The monster closets, once a source of jump scares, now felt contrived. The gunplay, which had been satisfactory, now seemed mundane in comparison to the dynamic encounters of Half-Life 2. It's not that Doom 3 was a bad game, it's just that Half-Life 2 raised the bar so high, everything else paled in comparison. San Andreas was a marvel in open-world design. The game's setting, a fictionalized version of California, was vast, diverse, and teeming with life. From the urban sprawl of Los Santos to the arid deserts and the dense forests, every inch of San Andreas felt alive and meticulously crafted. This wasn't just a backdrop for the game's narrative, it was also a character in its own right. Players could spend hours exploring, interacting with the environment, and stumbling upon hidden gems and side quests. Rockstar Games had always been known for their storytelling prowess, but with San Andreas they outdid themselves. 
The tale of Carl C.J. Johnson's return to his old neighborhood, his struggles with gang violence, corruption, and his journey to save his family was both gripping and emotionally resonant. The game tackled themes of loyalty, identity, and the American dream all set against the backdrop of the early 90s West Coast hip-hop culture. However, the game's legacy is intertwined with the hot coffee controversy. Hidden within the game's code was a mini-game that, when accessed, showed explicit content. You're incredible. You should get paid for this. You're a real professional, baby. You should do this for a living. CJ, that was amazing. This discovery led to a firestorm of legal and ethical debates. The controversy wasn't just about the content itself, but also about the implications it had for the gaming industry. The ESRB's decision to re-rate the game as adults only, and the subsequent bans and fines highlighted the challenges the industry faced in self-regulation and content disclosure. The hot coffee debacle wasn't just a scandal, it was a watershed moment that forced the industry, the regulatory bodies, and the players to reevaluate their roles and responsibilities. The fallout from the controversy had lasting implications. The ESRB's decision to impose hefty fines on developers who failed to disclose graphic content was a clear message to the industry. It emphasized the importance of transparency and accountability. On the other hand, Rockstar's handling of the situation, particularly their reluctance to engage openly with the community and the media, was a lesson in crisis management. It underscored the importance of open communication, especially in an industry that relies so heavily on its community. Katamari Damashi was simple. Roll a sticky ball, or Katamari, around various environments, collecting objects that would stick to it, making the ball grow larger and larger. From thumbtacks to cats, from people to buildings. If it was in your path and your Katamari was big enough, it could be rolled up. But this simplicity was deceptive. One of the standout features of the game was its distinct art style. In an era where games were pushing for more realistic graphics, Katamari Damashi embraced a minimalist, almost cartoonish design. Bright colors, blocky characters, and surreal landscapes made it feel like you were playing inside a vibrant piece of modern art. This visual choice wasn't just about aesthetics, it complemented the game's whimsical nature and made every rolling session a visual treat. The soundtrack of Katamari Damashi was another element that set it apart. Instead of the typical orchestral scores or rock anthems that dominated many games of that era, Damashi offered a mix of jazz, pop, and traditional Japanese music, creating an eclectic soundscape that was both catchy and perfectly suited to the game's quirky vibe. Tracks like Lonely Rolling Star and Katamari on the Rocks became instant classics, not just within the gaming community, but in broader pop culture. However, beyond its art and music, Katamari Damashi was a commentary on consumerism. As players rolled up more and more objects, the game subtly highlighted the excesses of modern consumer culture. The joy of rolling up random objects was juxtaposed with moments of reflection as players realized they were consuming everything in their path from the mundane to the living. This underlying theme added depth to the game, making it more than just a fun distraction, but a piece of interactive art with something to say. 
The decision to shift development of Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater from the PlayStation 3 back to the PlayStation 2 was not one taken lightly. Kojima's vision for Snake Eater was ambitious, to say the least. He wanted to transport players from the familiar corridors of enemy bases to the unpredictable wilderness of the jungle. This was a stark departure from previous games in the series, and the challenges it presented were numerous. The dynamic weather, diverse landscapes, and the unpredictable predictability of wildlife were all elements that Kojima knew would be difficult to implement, yet he was driven by a desire to give fans and his team the game he yearned for. Instead of starting the player off within arm's reach of the enemy, Kojima wanted the journey to be part of the challenge. Players would begin miles away from their objective, navigating the treacherous terrain and using their wits to approach the enemy encampment. This design choice was a reflection of Kojima's commitment to emerge ensuring that players felt every step of Snake's journey. However, despite the game's critical acclaim and the innovations it brought to the table, its commercial performance was a mixed bag. By December, Snake Eater had sold a respectable 2.38 million units in Asia and America. But when you consider the broader picture, its sales paled in comparison to its predecessor, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, which had sold 7 million copies. This disparity raises questions about the challenges of innovating within a beloved franchise and the risks associated with deviating from a tried-and-true formula. Yet the legacy of Snake Eater is not defined by its sales figures. It's defined by its boldness, its willingness to challenge conventions, and its commitment to storytelling. Kojima's decision to take players into the jungle was not just a change of scenery, it was a statement about the evolution of the series and the medium as a whole. It showcased the potential of video games to transport players to worlds that were both fantastical and grounded in reality. The Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay wasn't just another movie game. It was a labor of love. One of the driving forces behind its success was the involvement of Vin Diesel, the star of the Riddick movies. Diesel wasn't just lending his likeness and voice to the game, he was an avid gamer himself. His passion for the medium and his character shone through in every aspect of the game. It's not every day that a Hollywood actor gets so deeply involved in the game's development, and Diesel's commitment was palpable. It wasn't just about running and gunning, it was about immersing players in the gritty dark world of Butcher Bay. The lighting, the sound design, the detailed environments, everything worked together to create a sense of place that was both oppressive and intriguing. This was a game that understood the power of ambiance, and it used it to its full advantage. The Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay also boasted intricate level design that encouraged exploration and strategy. Players couldn't just charge in guns blazing, they had to think, plan, and use the environment to their advantage. Advantage. The game seamlessly blended first-person combat with stealth elements, offering players multiple ways to approach each challenge. This level of depth and flexibility is still rare today for a movie tie-in game, and it set the Chronicles of Riddick Escape from Butcher Bay apart from its peers. However, despite its quality, the game didn't achieve the commercial success it may have deserved. The lukewarm reception of the Riddick movie certainly didn't help, and many players overlooked the game. 
assuming it was just another licensed title. It's a testament to the developer's belief in their creation that they went on to produce a sequel, The Chronicles of Riddick Assault on Dark Athena. This fascinating franchise shows how movies, actors, and video gaming were becoming equalized in the mainstream, and this game was a harbinger for the future massively interconnected properties we see today. Power is one of the most eagerly awaited video games finally goes on sale. She's preparing to rewrite retail history. Dozens of grown men and probably about three women have crawled out of their parents' basements tonight to be first in line to buy the new video game Halo 2. Bungie, a modest game development company that had achieved considerable success with their early titles, found themselves in the global spotlight with the debut of Halo Combat Evolved. This game became the North Star in the gaming universe, casting a radiant glow that would beckon gamers from around the world. The ring world of Halo wasn't just a level, it was a testament to Bungie's creative brilliance, a symphony of game design, storytelling, and unmatched gameplay. But such success, while enviable, came with its own set of challenges. The expectation was now set, the bar was raised. This was not just about delivering another game, this was about delivering on a legacy. The production of Halo 2 was fraught with challenges from the outset. Unlike their initial approach with Halo, where Bungie had a clear vision and ample development time, the sequel was different. The pressure from Microsoft, the new stakeholders following their acquisition of Bungie, was palpable. They weren't merely commissioning a game, but were investing in what would be the spearhead of their gaming division. For Microsoft, Halo wasn't just a game, it was the defining anchor for their Xbox console. Internally, Bungie underwent numerous shifts. While Halo Combat Evolved saw the developers as passionate artisans crafting their magnum opus, the development for Halo 2 felt different. The work culture had shifted from one of pure creative exploration to a challenging race against time and market expectations. There were tensions, moments of despair, and exhaustion. Creative stalwarts like Paul Bertone, Marty O'Donnell, and Joe Staden often found themselves at the crossroads of innovation and practicality. A narrative crisis struck mid-development. Bungie found that their initial storyline was sprawling, possibly too ambitious for a single release. Sections had to be cut, leading to a now infamous cliffhanger ending that left fans both amazed and frustrated. The multiplayer component of Halo 2, however, was the silver lining. It was a gargantuan leap forward. Bungie introduced features that are now staples in online gaming. The idea of matchmaking, the intricate ranking systems, the clans, the seamless integration with Xbox Live, these were innovations that set Halo 2 apart. Amidst this stormy backdrop, what's astonishing is the unwavering commitment to quality that Bungie exhibited. They weren't just building a game, they were sculpting an experience. Halo 2 wasn't just about Master Chief or The Covenant, it was about the heart and soul of every developer, designer, and artist at Bungie who bled pixels to bring the game to life. It's a testament to the resilience and passion of Bungie that Halo 2, despite its tumultuous development, not only met, but exceeded expectations. The game didn't just dominate charts, it became a cultural touchstone. Midnight launches, fan festivals, and the burgeoning world of esports found a rallying point with Halo 2. In retrospect, the journey of Halo 2 is emblematic of the larger gaming industry's trajectory during that period. It was an era of transitions, of balancing burgeoning commercial interests with the heart and soul of game development. While giants like Electronic Arts were creating an ocean of content, it was ships like Halo 2 that sailed those seas. 2005 was a year of contradictions for the gaming industry, marked by both 
unprecedented success, and simmering controversies. While handheld gaming took center stage, with the Nintendo DS and PlayStation PSP driving the portable sector past the $1 billion mark, the overall gaming industry experienced minimal growth. The culprit? Gamers were holding on to their hard-earned cash in anticipation of the next generation of consoles, leaving the industry in a peculiar state of limbo. PC gaming, once the undisputed champion, failed to scrape past the $1 billion milestone it had comfortably surpassed in previous years, despite PC-centric mega-properties like Civilization IV and games like it. But the year's most dramatic turn of events unfolded outside the realm of sales figures and market trends entirely. The infamous Hot Coffee mod in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas unleashed a storm of controversy, leading to an ESRB re-rating to adults only, and igniting an impassioned public discourse on video game sex and violence. Even 60 Minutes jumped on the bandwagon, accusing GTA of, quote, leading to murder and inciting gamers to, quote, blow away cops. Enter stage left, the controversial Jack Thompson, who spearheaded the push for regulation and censorship before his eventual disbarment. Thompson's crusade led the groundwork for proposed bills by Joe Lieberman and Hillary Clinton, which sought to establish a U.S. federal regulatory body overseeing video games. The release of the Xbox 360 this year was a significant event, especially considering that Halo 2, a game that had made a significant impact on the gaming landscape, was only a year old. The timing of the Xbox 360's release seemed to compress the timeline of gaming evolution, creating a sense of rapid progression and anticipation. Microsoft's strategy with the Xbox 360 was aggressive and forward-thinking. They saw the launch of the Xbox 360 as a wild success, given its unprecedented, staggered worldwide attack in North America, Europe, and Asia. However, the release of the Xbox 360 also brought with it some controversies. The console's launch was not without its critics, with some questioning the wisdom of releasing a new console so soon after the success of Halo 2. How did the controversies of 2005 influence the way developers approached mature themes in their games and shape the industry, and what impact did the surge in handheld gaming have on the broader market? Capcom's survival horror classic took a bold new direction, refining the series' gameplay with a more action-oriented approach. The over-the-shoulder camera, tight controls, and engrossing narrative made it a standout title and influenced countless games that followed. While not directly related to Resident Evil, it's undoubted that Resident Evil's success was involved in Capcom landing in some hot water with the U.S. government over a little old thing called transfer pricing. The practice of transfer pricing, as it was employed by Capcom, is a fascinating aspect of the company's history. Essentially, Capcom USA was considered a separate entity from Capcom's headquarters in Japan, which you might recall from the Mega Man artwork fiasco. This meant that Capcom USA was required to purchase game units directly from Capcom Japan, rather than simply distributing them as part of the same company. This arrangement might seem unusual, but it's a common practice in multinational corporations. Transfer pricing allows companies to manage the allocation of revenue between different regions and divisions. However, it's a practice that's heavily regulated and scrutinized due to its potential for misuse. In Capcom's 
case, the profits from the sales of games in the US were essentially being transferred back to Japan. This meant that the revenue was subject to Japanese tax laws, which were potentially more favorable for Capcom. The US government, specifically the Internal Revenue Service, or the IRS, took issue with this practice. From their perspective, profits made from the sales in the US should be subject to US tax laws. This disagreement led to Capcom coming under scrutiny from the IRS. The US government didn't take kindly to profits essentially being transferred to Japan, and Capcom eventually found itself in hot water over the practice. This episode serves as a reminder of the complex and often tricky nature of international business, even in the world of video game development. Now there is no hope. And Kratos cast himself from the highest mountain in all of Greece. After ten years of suffering, ten years of endless nightmares, it would finally come to an end. At the heart of the epic God of War was Kratos, a character unlike any we'd seen before. This wasn't your typical hero. Kratos was a deeply flawed, tortured soul, driven by rage and a thirst for vengeance against the very gods he once served. His complexity was a stark departure from the archetypal protagonists of the time. Players weren't just controlling Kratos, they were experiencing his pain, his anger, and his relentless drive. The emotional connection made every battle feel personal, and every victory, however brutal, deeply satisfying. The combat system was fluid, intuitive, and devastatingly powerful. Every swing of Kratos' chained blades felt weighty and impactful, and the game's combo system allowed players to chain together attacks in a ballet of destruction. But it wasn't just about mindless button mashing. The game introduced strategic elements, requiring players to read their enemies, anticipate attacks, and use the environment to their advantage. This depth added layers to the combat, ensuring that battles remained engaging throughout the game. Visually, God of War was a testament to the capabilities of the PlayStation 2. The game's depiction of ancient Greece was both grand and grim, with sprawling temples, foreboding underworlds, and towering gods rendered in meticulous detail. One of the game's standout moments was the ascent of the Temple of Pandora, a multi-layered puzzle and combat challenge that showcased the game's intricate level design and attention to detail. This was more than just a game, it was a work of art. Yet amidst all the praise, one aspect of God of War that goes overlooked is its narrative depth. Beyond the surface-level tale of revenge, the game delved into themes of betrayal, redemption, and the consequences of unchecked ambition. It questioned the nature of power and the cost of blind loyalty. These deeper narrative threads gave the game a richness that resonated with players, ensuring its place not just as a gaming classic, but as a storytelling benchmark. Shadow of the Colossus was a meditation on loneliness, sacrifice, and the lengths one would go for love. Wander, our protagonist, is not your typical hero. There's no army at his back, no kingdom to save, and no clear enemy in sight. His mission is singular 
to revive a girl named Mono, but to do so he must traverse vast landscapes and confront 16 colossi, each a marvel of design and animation. These aren't just oversized foes, they're living, breathing puzzles. Each colossus presents a unique challenge, requiring players to observe, strategize, and exploit vulnerabilities. The battles are epic, not only in scale, but in emotional weight. With every fallen colossus, there's a palpable sense of loss, a questioning of purpose. The game's world is vast, but it's also empty. There are no side quests, no NPCs to interact with, and no towns to visit. It's just Wander, his horse aggro, and the looming colossi. This design choice was deliberate. The emptiness serves to heighten the sense of isolation and makes every encounter with a colossus all the more jarring. It's a world that feels ancient, with ruins scattered across the landscape, hinting at civilizations long gone and stories untold. In many games, the soundtrack is a constant presence, guiding players' emotions and reactions. In Shadow of the Colossus, long stretches of gameplay are devoid of music. The only sounds are the wind rustling through the grass, the distant call of a bird, or the soft thud of aggro's hooves on the ground. This minimalistic approach makes the moments when the music does swell, usually during the Colossus battles, all the more impactful. It's often said that Shadow of Colossus is a game that will make you cry. While emotions are subjective, the game's narrative, combined with its artistic direction, does tug at the heartstrings. The ending, which I won't spoil here, is art in storytelling, leaving players with more questions than answers and a heavy heart. This time capsule is bigger than the rest, with both more games, but also our first non-game item, the guitar from Guitar Hero. Harmonix's Guitar Hero allowed players to step into the shoes of their favorite rock stars, strumming along to classic tunes on a guitar-shaped controller. But while the game itself was revolutionary, offering a fresh take on the rhythm genre, it was the guitar controller that truly set it apart. This wasn't just another joystick or button-mashing device, it was an instrument, or at least it felt like one. The tactile sensation of holding the guitar, pressing the fret buttons, and strumming the strum bar added a layer of immersion. The Guitar Hero guitar transcended the confines of the gaming community. It became a symbol not just of a game, but of a generation. It was common to walk into a friend's house and see the guitar propped up next to the TV, a silent invitation to a rock-off. Parties and gatherings often had that one guy who bring over his Guitar Hero set, turning a casual hangout into a full-blown rock concert. The guitar became synonymous with fun, competition, and camaraderie. But beyond the social aspect, the Guitar Hero guitar represented a shift in how we interacted with games. It was a move towards more physical, active participation. This was a precursor to the motion gaming trend we'd see with the likes of the Wii and Kinect. The guitar was a bridge, merging the virtual and the physical making players feel like they were truly a part of the game. Now, while Guitar Hero spawned several sequels and spin-offs, each with their own set of songs and gameplay tweaks, the core experience remained largely the same. And that's because the formula was just that good. But as with all things, the specifics of each game, the track lists, the DLCs, they all blur into the background over time. What remains, however, is the memory of the guitar. That feeling of strapping it on, hitting those notes perfectly, and achieving that elusive 100% on expert mode. 
In Fear, Monolith Productions managed to craft a world that was both hauntingly beautiful and deeply unsettling. Every corner turned could lead to a heart-pounding gunfight or a spine-chilling supernatural encounter. The duality of intense combat and eerie horror was what set Fear apart from its contemporaries. Enemies in Fear didn't just stand around waiting to be shot. They strategized, flanked, and even retreated when outgunned. This dynamic AI system made every encounter feel fresh and unpredictable. Players couldn't just rely on memorizing enemy positions, they had to think on their feet, adapt to the situation, and use the environment to their advantage. It was this AI system that elevated the game from a standard shooter to a tactical combat experience. The graphics, especially for its time, were nothing short of spectacular. The game's use of lighting and shadows added depth and realism to the environment. Dust particles floated in the air, lights flickered, and every bullet impact felt tangible. This attention to detail extended to the game's supernatural elements as well. Ghostly apparitions would appear and disappear, leaving players questioning what was real and what was a figment of their imagination. Fear went on to spawn multiple sequels and expansions, each building on the foundation laid by the original, but the impact of the first game can still be felt today in every jump scare and slow motion shootout. World of Warcraft, or WoW as it's affectionately known, wasn't the first MMORPG, but it was the one that perfected the formula. Its expansive World of Azeroth was a tapestry of rich lore, intricate quests, and diverse environments. From the snowy peaks of Dun Moreau to the barren wastelands of the Barrens, every inch of Azeroth was meticulously crafted. But what truly set WoW apart was its emphasis on social gameplay. This wasn't just a game, it was a community. Guilds were formed, friendships were forged, and rivalries were born. Raids required coordination, dungeons demanded teamwork, and the world PvP zones? Well, they were a test of both skill and alliance loyalty. This social aspect transformed WoW from a mere game to a living, breathing world where every player had a role to play. It taught a generation of players how to be leaders, how to be social, and how to make friends. Now, while the game's vast world and social dynamics were groundbreaking, there were moments in WoW's history that transcended the game itself. One such moment was the Corrupted Blood incident. What started off as a simple debuff from a raid boss soon turned into a virtual pandemic. Players, unaware of the contagious nature of the debuff, spread it to others, leading to mass virtual deaths. Cities were abandoned and players were quarantined. The incident was so significant that it caught the attention of epidemiologists, who studied it to understand real-world disease spread. It's a testament to WoW's design that an unintended game mechanic could mirror real-world phenomena so closely. Another iconic moment from 2005 that's impossible to overlook is the Leroy Jenkins video. A player, in a bid to be heroic or perhaps just impatient, charges into a room full of enemies, leading to the demise of his entire group. His battle cry of Leroy Jenkins became an instant internet sensation. The very first viral video before the word viral was even used like this. It was referenced in TV shows such as South Park, My Name is Earl, How I Met Your Mother, The Daily Show, and even Jeopardy. But beyond the scripted humor, the video highlighted the unpredictable and organic nature of WoW's gameplay. It wasn't just about scripted events, the developer added, it was the players themselves who often created the most memorable moments. 
Now, when we think of LEGO games today, we picture a vast array of franchises from Harry Potter to Marvel superheroes, all given the blocky, humorous LEGO treatment. But back in 2005, this was a novel concept. LEGO Star Wars was the pioneer, the game that started it all. It wasn't just popular, it was the best-selling game in the UK. This was a LEGO game competing with high-budget, graphically intense titles, and yet it stood tall. But why? Well, it tapped into a unique blend of nostalgia. For older players, it was a trip down memory lane, revisiting the Star Wars saga, but with a non-verbal and playful twist. For the younger audiences, it was an introduction to both LEGO and Star Wars, two brands that have captivated imaginations for decades. But beyond sales figures and accolades, LEGO Star Wars introduced a gameplay style that was both accessible and deeply engaging. The drop-in, drop-out co-op was a revelation. It allowed players of all ages to to join in, making it a family favorite. Parents and children's siblings and friends could all dive into the game together, breaking and building their way through the Star Wars universe. This cooperative play, combined with the game's humor and charm, made it a standout title in a year packed with gaming gems. The ripple effect of LEGO Star Wars' success is evident. It was the catalyst for the LEGO Mega series of video games. It set the blueprint, not just in gameplay, but in how to adapt beloved franchises into the LEGO universe. The game's success proved that with the right touch, humor, and respect for the source material, you could create something that appealed to both die-hard fans and newcomers. Welcome to SeaWorld Adventure Park. I'm Horatio the Manatee. Our last show for the day has ended. Let's begin our lessons for your new animal behavior, Shamu. Shamu's Deep Sea Adventures represents the absolute pinnacle of buying a bad game for your friend. Buying it perhaps as a Christmas present, because the experience is so truly awful that surviving it makes you a member of a grizzled brotherhood. Shamu is the perfect game simply because of how painfully bad it is. Imagine, though, giving this bonding experience to a good friend of yours, and they don't play it. They just keep talking about how they're totally going to play it one day. Perhaps we should all even tag AntDude92 on Twitter and see See what he thinks about this. I've chosen him for absolutely no reason, of course. Also, apropos of nothing, Merry Christmas, Ant. Triumphs, Troubles, and Turning Points 2006. The Xbox 360 faced its share of challenges with whispers of hardware issues and a less-than-stellar performance in the Japanese market. Meanwhile, Blizzard made waves with their ban on LGBT-related content in World of Warcraft, a move intended to, quote, promote a positive game environment for everyone, but ultimately sparking heated debates. On a more positive note, Sony celebrated its first annual profit since 1996 a glimmer of hope in a tumultuous landscape. Behind the scenes, game companies like Nintendo, Atari, and Take-Two found themselves the bell of the ball, courted by larger conglomerates hungry for acquisitions. Gaming giants like Vivendi and EA were on a relentless shopping spree, snapping up smaller studios left and right. So what does this mean for the industry? How did these changes shape the games we play and the communities we're part of? And what can we learn from this roller coaster of a year that still holds relevance today?
Oblivion was a marvel for its time, and one of the most groundbreaking features was its open-world design. Now, open worlds are a staple in modern gaming, but back in 2006, the sheer scale and detail of Oblivion's world were revolutionary. The game offered a sprawling, meticulously crafted fantasy landscape filled with cities, dungeons, and wilderness. What set it apart was not just the size of the world, but the freedom it offered. You could follow the main quest, or explore side quests, join guilds and factions, or simply explore. But it wasn't just the world that was detailed, it was also the people inhabiting it. The Radiant AI system was a significant leap forward in NPC behavior. Characters had schedules, engaged in various activities, and could react dynamically to the player's actions. This level of immersion was unparalleled and contributed to the feeling that you were part of a much larger, organic world. While modding had been part of PC gaming for years, Oblivion brought it to the mainstream. The game was designed with modding in mind, and the community took full advantage of this, creating everything from simple texture mods to entirely new quests and even full-fledged expansions. This not only extended the game's lifespan, but also set a precedent for future titles, both within the Elder Scrolls series and beyond. Those same mods also set the stage for the beginning of a new kind of monetization inside of gaming, with Bethesda releasing Horse Armor for $2.49 as new, downloadable content. This was seen as a grave transgression at the time. Gamers were angry. They rose up against the idea of selling such a small piece of content as as a single skin for such a high price. The game's Dark Brotherhood questline is a masterclass in narrative design, blending moral choices, compelling characters, and unexpected twists in a way that few games had achieved before. It's a storyline that has been praised for its depth and complexity, yet it's entirely optional. This level of quality across not just the main quests, but also the side quests, set a new standard for narrative depth in open-world games. Oblivion was one of the first titles to truly showcase the capabilities of the then-next-gen and Xbox 360, making it a must-buy for anyone with the console. It was a technical marvel, pushing the boundaries of what was possible in terms of graphics, AI, and world design. But more than that, it was a game that captured the imagination, offering a level of freedom and depth that was previously thought impossible. The PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 were battling it out with high-definition graphics and complex gameplay mechanics, but Nintendo took a different route with the Wii, and at the forefront of this revolution was Wii Sports. This game, bundled with the Wii console, became an instant cultural phenomenon and a staple in households worldwide. Before Wii Sports, the concept of physically moving to control a video game was mostly relegated to niche peripherals and arcade setups. Wii Sports showcased how motion controls could be seamlessly integrated into home gaming. Whether you were swinging a tennis racket or throwing a bowling ball, the game captured these movements in an intuitive way. This wasn't just a technological marvel, it was a fundamental rethinking of how we interact with games. It broke down the barriers of entry, making gaming accessible to people who had never picked up a controller before. Video games were often seen as the domain of dedicated gamers willing to invest time and money into complex and challenging 
life-changing experiences. Wii Sports shattered this notion. Its simple pick-up-and-play nature appealed to a broad demographic from kids to grandparents. The game didn't demand hours of your time or a steep learning curve. It was straightforward fun that anyone could enjoy. This inclusivity had a ripple effect through the industry, leading to a surge in casual gaming that influenced everything from mobile games to social media integrations. The affordability of the Wii console, bundled with Wii Sports, was another game changer. In an era where gaming was becoming increasingly expensive, the Wii offered an affordable entry point. This was especially appealing to older adults who might not see the value in investing in a high-end gaming system, but were willing to spend a modest amount for a simple and engaging experience. The low cost wasn't just about the price tag, it was about lowering the financial barrier to entry into the gaming world. It made gaming a viable form of entertainment for families and individuals who might otherwise have stayed on the sidelines. Gears of War introduced a gritty, visceral style that was a departure from the more arcade-like shooters of the time. The game's aesthetic, from its desolate landscapes to its monstrous enemies, set a tone that was both haunting and captivating. This wasn't just about shock value, it was a calculated move to immerse players in a world that felt tangible and lived in. The game's art direction went on to influence a whole generation of titles, setting a new standard for what gritty realism could mean in video games. Before Gears of War, most shooters were about running and gunning. This game forced you to think before you acted, to take cover and make strategic decisions. The stop-and-pop gameplay was revolutionary, and it added a layer of tactical depth that was missing from many of its contemporaries. This wasn't just a shift in gameplay, it was a shift in how we think about the combat dynamics in video games. It made every encounter feel like a mini-chess match, where positioning and timing were as important as your aim. This cover-based system became a staple in many games that followed, from the Mass Effect series to more recent titles like The Division. At a time when multiplayer gaming was increasingly focused on competitive experiences, Gears of War reminded us of the joy of playing through a story with a friend. The game was designed with co-op in mind, from the level layouts to the enemy AI, making it a fundamentally different experience than going alone. This focus on cooperative gameplay was a nod to the social roots of gaming, a reminder that video games are often at their best when they're shared experiences. The game was initially conceived as part of the Unreal brand, as Unreal Warfare, which was already well known for fast-paced shooters. The shift away from the Unreal name was a bold move, but it allowed the game to carve out its own identity. It also gave Cliff Blazinski, or Cliffy B as he's often known, a platform to establish himself as a visionary in the gaming industry. Cliffy B had already made a name for himself with the Unreal series, but Gears of War solidified his reputation as someone who could not only create a successful game, but also redefine a genre. Okami's art style wasn't just a gimmick, it was an integral part of the game's identity. The ink painting aesthetic permeated every aspect of the game, from its environments to its characters. This wasn't just about looking pretty, it was a thematic choice that resonated with the game's narrative. You play as Amaterasu, the Shinto sun goddess, who takes on the form of a white wolf. Your mission is to restore a world cursed by darkness, and you do this using a magical paintbrush. The art style and the gameplay mechanics 
dynamics were in symbiotic relationship, each enhancing the other. This level of cohesion between art and gameplay is something that's often talked about but rarely achieved to this extent. The magical paintbrush was more than a tool. It was a narrative device that allowed players to interact with the game world in a deeply personal way. Each stroke of the brush had the power to change the environment, solve puzzles, or defeat enemies. This mechanic turned the act of playing into a form of artistic expression, blurring the lines between player and creator. Okami was not a commercial hit, but what's fascinating is Capcom's unwavering belief in the property. In an industry where the bottom line often dictates the lifespan of a game, Capcom's commitment to Okami was a testament to the game's artistic value. This is a crucial point because it shows that sometimes the impact of a game transcends its sales figures. Okami garnered critical acclaim and developed a devoted fan base that continues to celebrate the game today. It's a cult classic, an indie darling in the guise of a AAA title. The RTS genre had come a long way since the days of Dune 2, which laid the foundational elements of resource gathering, base building, and tactical combat. Company of Heroes took those elements and elevated them to an entirely new level. One of the game's standout features was its destructible environments. This wasn't just eye candy, it had a profound impact on gameplay. Buildings could be destroyed, providing tactical advantages or disadvantages. This dynamic environment forced players to think on their feet, making each skirmish a unique experience. The game's physics engine was so advanced that even the trajectory of artillery shells was calculated in real time, adding another layer of realism and unpredictability to the combat. Unlike other RTS games where the strategy often boiled down to who could produce units the fastest, Company of Heroes required a more nuanced approach. Resource points scattered across the map had to be captured and held, creating a constant tug of war between players. Units had individual stats, abilities, and even morale, which could be affected by the events unfolding on the battlefield. This level of detail gave the game a sense of depth and complexity. Company of Heroes didn't just throw you into random battles, it offered a narrative-driven campaign that was deeply rooted in historical events. The game took you through key moments of World War II, from the D-Day landings to the liberation of France, all while providing context and emotional weight to your actions. This narrative focus was a bold move for an RTS game, but it paid off by making players feel invested in the outcome of each mission. Brain Age was a fascinating blend of entertainment and cognitive exercise, inspired by the work of Dr. Ryuta Kawashima, a renowned neuroscientist. The game offered a series of mini-games designed to stimulate various parts of the brain. It was a far cry from the action-packed, adrenaline-fueled games that dominated the market, yet it sold tens of millions of copies worldwide, a testament to its universal appeal. Sudoku puzzles were a staple in Japanese newspapers, but they hadn't quite caught on globally. Brain Age changed that. The game included Sudoku puzzles as one of its mini-games, introducing millions of people to this addictive number game. It's not an exaggeration to say that Brain Age played a significant role in turning Sudoku into a global phenomenon. Newspapers started featuring Sudoku puzzles, and bookstores were filled with Sudoku books. People were buying the Nintendo DS not just for its innovative dual screen and touch capabilities, but specifically to play Brain Age. It became 
became a must-have title that transcended age groups. Parents, grandparents, and even people who never picked up a video game before were drawn to it. The game's accessibility and universal appeal made it a gateway into the world of gaming for many. It was a masterstroke by Nintendo, a company known for breaking the mold and taking risks. Brain Age was a selling point for the DS itself. While mobile gaming had existed in various forms before, think Snake on the Nokia phones or even the rudimentary games on PDAs, Brain Age was a different beast altogether. It was a game that was not just portable, but also deeply integrated into daily life, almost like a utility. This is what I think makes it fair to say that Brain Age is the first truly modern mobile game. You see, Brain Age was designed to be played in short bursts, perfect for filling those idle moments while waiting for a bus or standing in line at the grocery store. It didn't demand the kind of time or attention that traditional console games did. This design philosophy would later become a cornerstone for mobile games, especially as smartphones entered the scene. The pick-up-and-play nature of Brain Age was revolutionary for its time, setting the stage for the mobile gaming explosion that would follow in the years to come. Moreover, Brain Age was one of the first games to use the portable device's capabilities in a way that felt organic to the gameplay. The touchscreen wasn't just a gimmick, it was integral to the experience. Whether you were scribbling numbers for a quick math problem or tracing letters, the game made full use of the DS's unique hardware features. This kind of intuitive, hardware-driven design would later become a hallmark of successful mobile games. But perhaps what truly sets Brain Age apart as a precursor to the mobile gaming phenomenon is its broad appeal. This was a game that could be enjoyed by people of all ages and backgrounds. It wasn't targeted at gamers, per se, but at anyone interested in giving their brain a workout. This universal appeal is something that mobile games have tried to replicate, often aiming for a broad demographic rather than a niche gaming audience. New Super Mario Bros. is a fascinating study in both innovation and stagnation. On one hand, it marked a triumphant return to the 2D platforming that made Mario a household name. On the other, it signaled a certain creative plateau for Nintendo, a reliance on tried-and-true formulas that would become increasingly evident in the years to come. In an era where 3D graphics and complex narratives were becoming the industry standard, New Super Mario Bros. took a step back to focus on the core mechanics that made the original Super Mario games so compelling. The game was a commercial juggernaut, selling over 30 million copies and becoming one of the best-selling games for the DS. It was a clear message to the industry. There was still a massive appetite for 2D platformers, a genre many had considered outdated. But here's where the narrative takes a nuanced turn. While the game was a commercial success, it also laid bare a certain creative inertia within Nintendo. The game was, in many ways, a polished rehash of elements we'd seen before. Future iterations of the Super Mario series seem to take this as a cue, often iterating on the new Super Mario Bros. formula without adding much in the way of groundbreaking innovation. This isn't necessarily a knock on the quality of these games, they're exceptionally well-crafted, but it does highlight a certain risk aversion that has characterized much of Nintendo's output in the years following. This brings us to a rarely discussed but highly influential aspect of the game, its role in Nintendo's 
broader business strategy. New Super Mario Bros. was not just a game, it was a statement of intent. It was Nintendo doubling down on its core franchises, even as it struggled to figure out how to make products that appealed beyond its traditional user base. This tension would become even more apparent with the release of the Wii just one month later, a console that aimed for broad appeal, but often at the expense of core gamers. HD game development is notoriously time-consuming and resource-intensive, and Nintendo was no exception. Games started taking longer to develop, often with mixed results. This had a cascading effect on Nintendo's handheld market. The DS and later the 3DS were victims of this shift in focus. As games took longer to develop, Nintendo had fewer resources to devote to its handheld systems. Eventually, leading to a consolidation of sorts with the Nintendo Switch, a hybrid device that could function as both a console and a portable gaming system. Splinter Cell Double Agent is a fascinating case study in the complexities of video game development and marketing during the transitional period of console generations. The game was a follow-up to the critically acclaimed Chaos Theory and represented an ambitious attempt to reinvent the franchise for the next generation of gaming hardware, notably the Xbox 360. Or at least one version of a follow-up ended up on the 360. See, one of the most intriguing aspects of Double Agent is the stark difference between its versions. The game was released on both generations, Xbox and Xbox 360, PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3, GameCube and Wii. But these weren't just graphical upgrades or downgrades of the same game. They were fundamentally different experiences developed by separate studios. The original Xbox version was more in line with the traditional Splinter Cell formula and was lauded for its polished and robust stealth mechanics. However, it was overshadowed by its next-gen counterpart, which received the lion's share of Ubisoft's marketing efforts. The original Xbox and PS2 version, which was significantly higher rated and more of a true sequel, was even declared non-canon by Ubisoft, a clear indication that the company was eager to move forward. This divergence in game versions wasn't just a quirk of development, it was emblematic of the industry's larger struggles with cross-generational releases. Today we take it for granted that a major title will be available on both current and next-gen consoles, but back in 2006, the landscape was far less standardized. The result was a sort of identity crisis for games like Double Agent, where neither version could definitively claim to be the real Splinter Cell experience. This fractured approach likely contributed to the game's relatively short shelf life, as players and critics alike moved on to titles that more fully realized the potential of next-gen hardware. Meanwhile, the Wii version of Double Agent provides another layer of insight into the challenges Nintendo faced during this time. The Wii, with its unique motion controls, aimed to differentiate itself from its competitors and captured the attention of casual gamers. However, the console's technical limitations prevented it from competing graphically with the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. Double Agent on the Wii exemplified this struggle, lacking the visual fidelity and intricate mechanics that defined the franchise on other platforms. The Wii's difficulties extended beyond just a single game. The console's broader library faced issues with game parody, often delivering experiences that were perceived as inferior compared to those available on Xbox and PlayStation consoles. The challenges of the Wii era would eventually be summed up as a perceived lack of third-party support, which would lead to a perception that Nintendo's system was primarily meant for casual gaming. 
a perception that was easily supported by releases like the significantly lesser Double Agent on Wii. This perception was part of a larger issue for Nintendo, which was about to face a seismic shift in the casual gaming market with the advent of the iPhone. Many of the casual gamers that Nintendo had courted with the Wii would soon migrate to mobile platforms, leaving the company in a precarious position. The Wii's limitations became increasingly apparent within weeks of the console's release, and games like Double Agent served as a stark reminder of the system's shortcomings. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.